Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. We're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. As always, dad is an energy. It is not a gender. That's very true. It's true, true, true. Big episode for us. Episode 62. What makes that particularly (laughs) big? Man, that's way bigger than one episode. I feel like uh, every week you're like a big episode. <laughs> a <right>? milestone. <laughs> yeah. 62, 63. Got a big one coming up in seven, but we'll see. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Let's get right into it. We watched, I mean, we're talking kind of like we've watched five smackaroonies, but we watched more smackaroonies than that. Um, but let's kick it off. Movie number one. Went out to the old cinema and saw Evil Dead Rise, a 2023 horror movie. Written and directed by Lee Cronin. It stars uh, Lily Sullivan as Beth, Alyssa Sutherland as Ellie, uh, Nell Fisher as Cassie, Gabriel Eccles as Bridget, um, Richard Crouchley as Caleb, and a few other sprinkles. In you there. should say Morgan Davies as Danny. Oh, was that the was that the boy? Yes, the, the, the brother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, Morgan Davies as Danny. <laughs> uh, all right. Synopsis. A twisted tale of two estranged sisters. I like that. I like that. Uh, whose reunion is cut short by the rise of flesh possession, <laughs> flesh possessing demons, thrusting them into a primal battle for survival as they face the most nightmarish version of family imaginable. Whoa. Uh, all right. Yeah, I was I was quite excited for this one. What do you think of Evil Dead Rise? I like, don't really care for the Evil Dead movies. Tell me more. I just got no skin in the Evil Dead game. No? No. People love them so much. Yeah. And I don't know what I'm missing. What am I missing? I don't know if I can tell you what you're <laughs> what you're missing. I mean, my experience with the Evil Dead films is that my uncle on my mom's side really liked Evil Dead. And I remember I went to his place and was going through all of his DVD collection 
and he had a version of the original Evil Dead that was it was the Book of the Dead, like the case of the DVD was the Book of the Dead, bound mm-hmm. in human flesh, and it Whoa. like it felt really gross, <laughs> and I was just like, "What is this?" Um, and I borrowed it from him. I was, I was probably too young to. How old do you think watch. you were? I feel, mm, I feel like I was between ten and twelve, maybe. Okay, twelve seems fine. Yeah, but I remember, you know, the first Evil Dead. Now, what like rewatching it now? It is. It's definitely cheesy, hammy, low budge. Pretty impressive for a low budget movie. But it, it is hammy and cheesy. But I remember it kind of fucked me up the first time that I watched it because it was just really intense and overwhelming to the senses. But that kind of hooked me. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I don't feel like I'm a head over heels Evil Dead fan the way that some other people are about Evil Dead. But you like Evil Dead. I like Evil Dead. And you always have. And like I, when the um, when the 2013 reboot came out i was really excited for that i took my uncle to it um and we've we've watched it a couple times together and i was really excited for this one too i don't know i think that there's something about the people that are possessed with the combination of really like cringe like not cringe but like um like uh Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the writhing sort of uh, give me kind of gooseies of how gross and gory these can be. Like those kind, <laughs> those kinds of it, it has a lot of those kinds of moments in it, and I I like that. I like getting that experience from an and that's something very unique to the Evil Dead movies. I feel like the kind of possession that happens, and then the kind of gore that um, ensues after the possession. I have a lot of fun with that. Well, I mean, it's, okay, again, sorry, nobody canceled me for saying this. Isn't it kind of similar to, like, what happens to Reagan and The Exorcist? Yeah, and I like that stuff in The Exorcist. Yeah, but you just said it's unique to The Evil Dead. I, f- I feel like... Like, in terms of that, like, guttural, like, rotting, and like that mummies with the maggots like that kind of stuff like maybe that's the piece too is like the evil dead also has a sense of humor about itself yeah the exorcist is not funny no it's like anything that could be perceived as quote-unquote funny in the exorcist is just in service of being upsetting yeah um whereas the evil dead kind of knows that it's going a little bit nuts and it makes fun of that a little bit Um, okay okay yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just maybe didn't see it when I was young enough. So it's just not in my like formative horror. And like I swear that my dad really liked Evil Dead, but he's dead and I can't ask him. <laughs> so True. Yeah. You know? And I was only <laughs> I was the only one who really liked horror movies, so I don't no, in my family other than him, so I don't know of anyone else in my family who could answer that question mm-hmm. in the way that, like, when I was like, huh, did Dad like Star Wars? I was able to ask my sister and my brother who like Star Wars because they would have known, but none of my siblings or my mom would know if he liked Evil Dead or not. Right. But I swear he did, and it does strike me as one that maybe 
he didn't want me to see when I was super young because it gets pretty like there's some of the violence in it that is not particularly tasteful mm-hmm. in a way. Well, I mean, same in the exorcist, but yeah, I just have this like vague memory of like, not yet. You're not watching it yet kind of thing. So the first time you watched the original evil dead was with me. Correct. Okay. I'd seen clips of it and I knew a lot about what happened in it. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen army of darkness. Yeah. But like also low key, I just don't like Sam Raimi all that much. Like you, you and a lot of other people really like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. I don't really mm. like, I think he does some similar kind of mixture of humor, silliness, self-awareness about that silliness and horror as James Wan. And I'm a bigger fan of James Wan. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just doesn't just doesn't click for you. But then I feel like there's something wrong with me for that. <laughs> right? Like we were driving back from this movie and you were like, the deadites, the deadites. And I'm like, stop saying that. What the hell is a deadite? <laughs> like I didn't, you know. I'm like, was that like I kept thinking like Hellraiser or something. Mm. But but no. In terms of this movie though, for someone who has skin in the Evil Dead game, mm-hmm. you've seen them all. Yes. How does this one compare? Um, this was fine. I remember hitting a point kind of getting into the third act of this movie where I just kind of had a bit of a self-reflection moment. And I'm just like, I'm having a fine time. <laughs> <laughs> this is okay. This is okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I see myself returning to the 2013 reboot that that came out more often more frequently than returning to this i kind of like that one um like we've seen it a couple times yeah and i remember when it came out like it was like all the marketing for the 2013 one i like that we're talking about so many of the other evil dead movies (laughs) instead of talking (laughs) about this one but the 2013 one was just like this is the most fucked up thing you're ever going to see and i remember seeing the red band trailer and then i was like oh my god and like there was just so much more of that like Make you just kind of writhe in your own skin. And it makes good on some of that promise. Yeah. Um, and there's really creepy stuff, really upsetting stuff, really good gore. Um, the ending scene is just super ridiculous and epic. And I feel like Evil Dead Rise tries, to, in, in its trailers leading up to it, it kind of tries to make that promise. but And then it tries to cash in on those promises it felt like it pulled its punches and I feel like a a reason for that is because this is the first one to kind of focus around a family and if, so everybody is everybody cares and loves each other it's it's less about like this is a friend group this is a friend group this is a friend group and you could care about some care about not care about others um yeah so I, I feel like that was something that was kind of against this going as hard as it could. Like, and there was only one moment that I can think of in the film that gave me that make my skin crawl kind of moment or that make me go like, you know, like kind of tense up. Yeah. Like, so I want to make it clear. I, I don't dislike like evil dead. I haven't seen army of darkness, but I've seen all the others and I don't dislike evil dead one and evil dead two. Like I, I actually, I do like them. Mm-hmm. I just like, that magic that some of you all feel, I don't. Yeah. Um, 
And I'm like, oh, what a shame because people just like love this. But I also thought this was fine and I was kind of excited for it because so many people and, and I'm not talking trailers or just like random things online. I'm talking people we know that have seen it, people we follow on Letterboxd that like, you know, we've been following for a while and we trust what they have to say. We're like, this is so gory. It doesn't let up when it goes, it goes. And so many people of those people made this a seeing this a priority too. Like, yeah. Like because it was kind of it was Bo is afraid this. Oh, and there was something. Oh, and then at our local theater, showing up was playing. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people were trying to decide like which one they wanted to see first. So mm -hmm. in trying to see all of them, when were they going to go? Mm -hmm. And we obviously, if you listen last week, know that we made Bo was afraid a priority. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I just kept hearing like it's gory, it's gory, it's it's so relentless, and I just like didn't feel that. It didn't feel relentless, and it didn't feel particularly gory to me. Um, which makes me which makes me question like are we desensitized yeah that to it? <laughs> was my question too like well and i was thinking of a couple things so again controversial statement don't cancel me kid stuff doesn't really bother me there's people that like if there's if there's a kid involved in like the violence and i'm not mm. talking sexual violence obviously like i don't like that anytime yeah. anywhere regardless of who the the person the age the gender whatever um, which we'll probably talk about in some upcoming films. But like in terms of like death and, and this and that, it doesn't make me any more upset if it's a kid. Right. Yeah. Like maybe, you know, some like newborn death stuff in like, I guess I don't want to spoil anything, but you know, there's a couple of films we watched right before we started the, the pod. Nice. Um, that had some like infant deaths in it and they were dramas or like surreal films. They weren't horror mm -hmm. that were like pretty whoa, but you know, I'm talking like toddlers and, and like elementary age kids. It doesn't bother me anymore. And I think other people it does. As soon as a kid's involved, it's like more intense. Right. Like, you know, a death or violence against anyone kind of equally across the playing field bothers me. And it, it I, think maybe if you make that a child or whatever in the hopes that that's going to raise the stakes substantially that's actually kind of cheap and dumb um the only thing i would say that gets me is like animal stuff <laughs> yeah which like i don't think we're alone in that even folks who like aren't vegetarians yeah but i'm the same way and i think that that's a really good observation that I hadn't really thought about that because I'm on the same boat as you. Like just because you introduce a child doesn't immediately ratchet up the tension and the stakes of what's going on. Cause Or just because it's a family doesn't for me. Yeah. Unless it's I, in something like, say, funny, funny games. games. Yes. Wow. Where it's like that terror of trying to protect your child from an outside force. And thinking, like, you know, I can put myself in that scenario with what if that happened to us when we had, like, one of the nibblings in our care. Yes. You know, or, or I can put myself in that place as a teacher, too. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if I'm like, I have to be the protective force for these people in my care. Mm -hmm. But that's not what's going on here, really. Yeah. Like, like that can get me when it's, when it's, when it's real, but not when it's supernatural. Because I'm like, ah, whatever. <laughs> you know, well, okay, possession. <laughs> Well, and the thing about this movie in particular, too, like the characters were fine. Like, I don't I didn't really 
care about the story of them. No. Um, in, in fact, can we just stop with cheap mother stuff? Can we just stop? Like the whole, I don't think this is a spoiler to say that the aunt finds out at the very beginning of the film that she's pregnant. And that's like a huge part of the film is like, she's a, a like a guitar tech on the road. Can she be a mother? Yeah. Like I'm just like, can, can we just fucking stop? Can she just be an aunt? Yeah. Why does there have to be this? She'd make a good mother. Like I just, I'm not against mother stuff. Because you're equating the fact that she survived this extremely traumatic thing. Is that a spoiler? <laughs> so you're equating this really traumatic experience that she's going through and how she deals with it or handles it with whether she'd be that's a, a gauge of how good of a mother she'll be. Yeah. And then and then like as a counterpoint to like Ellie as a mother, right? Mm-hmm. And I just I don't know. So this to me, this movie slots right in with Megan and Smile. Mm. In terms of they're all kind of like on the same plane for me. If I look at those three in tandem, like in terms of the styles of the films, the accessibility of the films, the kind of trajectory of the films, I think they're all quite similar. Yeah. Um, I like Megan the most, Smile the least by far. Yeah. And then this right in middle of the road, you know, like... Megan kind of was like fun and dumb in its explorations and it knew it. Mm-hmm. This is kind of, I think, taking itself a little bit more seriously than I think it deserves and then smile that takes itself way more seriously than it deserves. Um, and something that, again, uh, all the controversial statements today, that really drives that home for me is this was originally going to be released straight to streaming for HBO Max. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it. Yeah. Yep. It's funny. Like, there's just some, you saying that, it's just like, that makes sense. Yeah. When I read that, I was like, yep. You know, you making the comparison to those other two movies, and you're right. There are like kind of similar motherhood style themes in that. Same with like Barbarian. But I'm not, I'm not even talking about themes. I'm just talking about like the type of movie they are in terms of a horror movie. They're right. like, they are perfect. Entry level horror for junior high kids. Yeah. Well, what I what I was gonna say, and and maybe I'm maybe I'm reaching, is that all of these movies, it seems like what they want to do is have a really strong female protagonist. Like that's what they want to have out of the gate. But the fact that they tie so many of them to this idea of motherhood or having to be find their way to becoming a good mother figure or a mother themselves. It's kind of like a fucked up narrative to have in so many new horror movies coming out. I think it's pretty common across the horror. Like think the ring, think mama. Sure. (laughs) But I I think that's actually a pretty common. No, I know. Exploration horror. And in, um, in smile, there's nothing to do with moms. Yeah. I think you're, yeah, I think you're reaching. I think I'm reaching. Yeah. I, I think I, you. I'm looking for a reason to poo poo when there, maybe there isn't poo poo. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to the whole gory thing because I just, I was really excited for what I was hearing from so many people that this is so relentlessly gory and I just did not find it gory. 
I think you say relentlessly gory. I think of the 2013. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask. Cause I was like, am I, are we desensitized or, you know, what are gory movies that we've seen more recently that we found gory and we're like, Oh, Whoa. Um, can you think of any that we've seen more recently and been kind of like taken aback by? Like a, are you thinking like a more recent released movie or it can no, be it can something be anything. we've watched? Yeah, but I just, around the same time frame, we're like, if the question is, are we desensitized or is this just really not as gory as people are saying it is? I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like the stuff that is quote unquote gory that fucks me up the most now or like most recently has been like stuff like The Fly or like David Lynch kind of stuff. It's a body horror. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, it's a really good question. Like in terms of this being gory, I thought. Oh, Outwaters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought that a lot of the like bloody violence to me was very CGI. Yeah. Which just like immediately then I, I don't think much of it. Um, well, and, and then I also thought it was really like we'd cut away a lot from these moments or it would be a quick moment of it happening and it wouldn't be, you know, there's a moment with a, the one that kind of got us with a kitchen appliance utensil mm-hmm. and it's like one quick moment. It's not like, let's do it and do it and do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Right. Like it's just once and done. And I was like, Oh, okay. Um, well, so many th- moments are in the trailer too. So I felt true. Like- Maybe those would have got us more if we hadn't seen the trailer. But the other thing is it's so, it was such a dark movie. Like it was such an underlit movie. Yes. So like I couldn't even really, and that's not just an evil dead rise thing. That's like a common thing going on with like movies being really dark mm-hmm. that like, I just didn't really see a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just like, I, I straight up, I left it and I'm like, everybody's calling this gory and relentless. And I did not think it was at all yeah like at all like nothing bothered me in it yeah. and like you know there's some eyeball stuff and some people talked about that but then you know we watched a movie later in the week where there's an eyeball thing not underlit not horror that no. bothers me way more yeah something like, i don't know am i just desensitized am i just being a baby was it overhyped and if we had heard that it wasn't very good would we have been like that was pretty good I don't I don't know because I feel like I didn't go into it with any preconceived notions really I'm just like I just want to go and have fun yeah in this evil dead universe that yeah. I've grown up liking and I, I was just yeah like I reached a point in it where I'm like yeah, this is fine and I'll probably never watch it again yeah like like I said I'll revisit the 2013 remake more times in my life than I'll revisit this a lot of the best parts of this in terms of like like good lines, like good evil dead lines um, and good like moments were in the trailer. And that's a shame because like mm-hmm. we just, and that trailer was everywhere for so long. Mm-hmm. Like it was really not avoidable um, that I think that that impacted it too. Yeah. I think you're right. I think looking at this as an entry level horror movie for younger people looking to get into Evil Dead or good. get into horror movies. I can see this. Like I can totally see, you know, junior high me that went to every horror movie opening every every weekend 
that there was a new horror movie going with my group of junior high friends and just like having a blast with this. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, 33 year old me, a little underwhelmed. Yeah. When I think like, you know, in that synopsis, the most nightmarish version of family imaginable, can't go watch Hereditary. Like, you know. Yeah, go watch Possession. Yeah. Like I just... (laughs) Yeah, I guess this middle-of-the-road horror stuff isn't jiving with me so much anymore. Yeah. Although I see its importance and its place. Like, it is it is fun. It is easy. Mm-hmm. Not mad that I saw it. Yeah. But I definitely don't really feel the need to see it again. But lots of people really, really liked it, so we might just be way off base on this. Yeah. I mean, if this is your jam, that's awesome. I'm stoked for you. Like, I'm so, I'm so happy you were able to get so much more out of this than I was able to. Okay. Evil Dead Rise. How did it make you feel? It made me satisfied for a matinee showing, but otherwise pretty ambivalent. Oh, yeah. I can echo that. It made me feel firmly rooted in the just fineness. Okay. We're doing a a two, two for one here. Uh, we revisited the 2003 slash 2004 action crime thriller Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, a.k.a. The Whole Bloody Affair. It was directed by Quentin Tarantino and written by him as well as the character of the bride was created by Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman. It stars Uma Thurman as the bride, Lucy Liu as Oren Ishii, Vivica A. Fox as Vernita Green, Michael Madsen as Bud, Daryl Hannah as L Driver, and David Carradine as Bill. Synopsis is, the bride must kill her ex-boss and lover Bill, who betrayed her at her wedding rehearsal, shot her in the head, and took away her unborn daughter. But first she must make the other four members of the Deadly Viper assassination squad suffer. Hot damn. Okay. What do you think of Kill Bill? So it's scary to revisit things we really liked when we were younger. Yes. There's kind of like three things going on. One, you'll realize you don't connect with it in the same way anymore or it has some problems you can't move move past past, and it'll ruin it for you, this thing that was so important. Mm -hmm. Two, you'll love it just as much. Perfect, amazing everything feels good or three, you'll love it just as much, but it has problems. You are looking past and you feel ashamed about that. <laughs> right? So there's kind of, it's scary on all fronts. Um, but I think it's important. Like I think reflecting on things you liked problems or not, but just reflecting on things that have been formative and, and seeing where you're at with them now um, is like a really beautiful way to chart your changes and and hopefully growth as a person yeah like as you see like even things that you know i've watched him and like i loved that it has no i loved it when i was younger it has no problems but it just doesn't resonate with me anymore and here's why yeah can be really interesting or like when we revisited eternal sunshine like it resonates in a totally different way Mm -hmm. and that is a really like important conversation starter about who we were then and who we are now I want to start with, like, when was the first time we saw these? Yeah, I, I want to get into that, but I just want to talk. I just want to speak to what you were saying, too. Like, um, and I'll admit, I feel a little bit self-conscious 
whenever I pick movies like this. Um, because like they are very white boy TM movies. Um, they were made by people like Quentin Tarantino and the Weinsteins. And they have played like such a pivotal, unabashed part of so many <laughs> people's lives that like they're not willing to look at or critique anything about this movie that they love. But what I and, and like what I like about picking movies like Kill Bill, like Die Hard with a Vengeance, like Interstellar, like these very <laughs> like <laughs> again, white boy TM movies, is I I like watching them because I like having because of the, the nature of our podcast and how we watch movies now, it it serves as a reflection point. Mm-hmm. And it it serves all the things you just said. Like I like re-examining these things that I so unabashedly loved, un- like uncritical eye, didn't didn't care. Just mm-hmm. I, I loved it, and there was no ifs ands or buts about it. I like revisiting them now with a more critical eye, and seeing how, how it hits now. If it if it's grown, um, and makes me feel differently. If there's new things I can take away from it, um, or if it's just a piece of shit and I never want to revisit it again. Uh, and that's kind of that's kind of what I think I'm hoping to do whenever I pick movies like this, because I think it's this I it's almost like I want to self-evaluate myself of and, and like critique myself a little bit and my movie tastes as a younger person. So I just I just wanted to <laughs> I wanted to put that out there because it was a bit of a reflection point for me of why like. I feel a little bit self-conscious because I feel like I'm kind of putting my feelings more on the line a little bit mm. um, because I just like, stood by some of these films. Still love it, and yeah. What if you do hate it now? Or yeah, what does it mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I was just thinking about that. But yes, let's get into first times that we saw these. So let's start with you. First time you saw Volume One. First time you saw Volume Two. Okay, so it's a really cool story. Um, <laughs> I couldn't remember. It involves one of my sisters and I couldn't remember which one. And I texted them both and asked and neither of them texted me back. So <laughs> they don't listen, but big middle fingers to both of you. <laughs> Flipping the bird. <laughs> it was days ago and neither of them replied. <laughs> but since then they have sent pictures of their kids. <laughs> yes, Kids, cats asked me to contribute to fundraising events for their children. Invited <laughs> me to watch the hockey game at their house. Hey, great. But do you remember when we saw Kill Bill? <laughs> yeah, who was it? Um, so anyway, one of my sisters, I think it was Brit. I think it was my second oldest sister. Cause that just checks in the timeline. Like, my oldest sister wouldn't have been living at home. We went to Blockbuster. I think it was a weekend or in my mind it was summer, but I don't know that that tracks with the events as they unfold. But I remember it being kind of like a lazy day. We had nothing to do. We were bored. So my mom like took us to go rent a movie and I'm just going to say it was Brit could be wrong. But it seems more up her alley to like like that she picked, grabbed Kill Bill and said, I've heard good things about this. The first one. Right. And so we took it home and we watched it and we were just like blown away. I remember it being really hot and just like a you don't want to be outside day. And we had like nothing to do. 
Mm. And like the two of us didn't really hang out very often. But I remember like going down to the basement where it was cooler and like watching it together and just being amazed. Mm -hmm. And then the ending Mm -hmm. and just being like, oh, holy what? Now we were lucky. Kill Bill Volume 2 was playing in the theaters. Oh, okay. Yeah, Yeah. So we went and saw it immediately. It was either that day or the very next day we went and saw it. That's great. And it was just like this like kind of perfectly accidental situation where we ended up seeing the two of them on this weekend back to back, mm-hmm. not even planning to do that um, and really, really loving it. And then I think before we took it back to Blockbuster, we like showed my mom the first one mm-hmm. and she like wasn't that into it, which tracks until the final scene. And then she was like, I have to know what happens. Um so, yeah, I just I remember it being this really like nobody else influenced it. It was accidental. We felt like we'd found buried treasure. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. when it's not like, oh, everybody's talking about this or oh, my friends want to go see this. But just like, ah, we're bored. Let's go pick something up. This looks kind of cool. And then being like, what the hell? I had never seen a Quentin Tarantino movie before. I was 13, mm-hmm. 12, probably. Yeah. Like. No, 13. I would have been 13. Um and and then also like bonding over that that like we both kind of discovered this together um and i kind of never went back i like watched it all both of them all the time mm-hmm. how about you yeah uh, i i love that it's so funny because the reason that i picked these a a, a big reason was that summer is starting to kind of rear its head here in in edmonton and it rear its head it's a good thing <laughs> you make it sound scary <laughs> no 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 uh like weather started to change starting to get nice out and i've always i always kind of think of kill bill as a summer movie because I, I feel like like you i feel like i watched it for the first time in the summer um and i rewatched it on a loop in the summer but the first time that i saw it um i don't think i had heard of it but my friend ben had bought it on DVD. And had he watched it before? I I don't think he had. But he brought his copy over to my place. And we watched it in my room. Had a little sleepover. And I think at that point, I, I also hadn't seen any other Quentin Tarantino movies. But we watched it. And yeah, like same thing. Just like melted our brains. Yeah. Of like... This is this is unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it's so cool and so badass. And and then yeah. And then it was a while before volume two came out. So I, I guess I had seen it. I had seen it a little bit before you had, because it wasn't even in theaters. And yet. you probably watched it a few times before you watched volume two. Because yeah, I didn't see volume two in the theater. Oh. I waited. Bummer. I waited until it was out on DVD. I don't know why, <laughs> but I waited because I, I imagine, I mean, at the time I would have been like 13 or 14. So I didn't have means to, if it wasn't playing at the theater in Leduc, I didn't have the means to it get was, to it. was. That's where we watched it. Okay. Then obviously I was just asleep <laughs> <laughs> and I missed it. But yeah, it, I didn't see it until it came out on DVD. And I remember walking to walmart on day one and buying and getting it i feel like that'd be such a different experience because there are a lot of things set up in volume one as like mysteries or 
you know, there's that thing of like, we don't know what her name is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, you know, in 2003, 2004, there isn't like Reddit and all that stuff where people would be like, oh, her name's actually on the plane ticket, you know, like right. just this way, you know, so you're just like, oh, I wonder what her name is. And, you know, the ending definitely leaves things on a cliffhanger. So you had all of that mm-hmm. for a long time before you watched the second one, whereas we went and immediately got answers to all of that by essentially watching it like one big movie. Like it was within 48 hours we had watched the first and the second. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Cause yeah, I, I would have sat with it for a, a long time, but yeah, I remember like going buying it and then coming home and watching it. Um, but it's so funny cause I still relate with what you said, the idea that you kind of found like a hidden gem or like a yeah. buried treasure. Cause nobody was really talking about this. Like I always watched all my Quentin Tarantino and movies like that with my friend Ben. Yeah. And, I mean, and that was kind of it. Like cute, cute story. I watched Pulp Fiction for the first time with Ben in high school. And that checks out. Cause Ben and I would typically on like Friday, Saturday nights, like he would come over to my place and we would rewatch the same movies. And like <laughs> we, we watched Pulp Fiction so many times and we just like fall asleep on the couch watching pulp fiction um but like we loved quentin tarantino movies and got so excited for them i think we both had but like nobody a film bro identity right and like we like cool stuff and no one else does yeah 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 yeah. and i like don't even know because i do think i had good for the time like really impressive capability of finding things like i you know i really liked like run lola run and Mm -hmm. Um, like I was watching like non-English movies and I'm like, where was I even finding these? Like, how was I even learning about these things? I mean, I was very active on the IMDb forums, I will say, Mm, Um, you know, I, and my dad really liked movies too. And he kind of had a pulse on like cool things, but yeah, like I, I think that it was impressive and, and same thing, like my friends, I was watching these by myself. Or with yeah. a sibling. My friends were not interested in watching these types of things with me. Mm-hmm. I'm not the way yours were, right? Like, I was watching Heroes by myself. You were watching it with a group of friends every week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting to go back and look at. And even though, like, some of those things I liked so much, you know, like Fight Club, and which we haven't revisited, and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, you know, these Quentin Tarantino movies and Fight Club and... You know, I, I I am interested in revisiting Amelie and, you mm-hmm. know, all all of this kind of what we're going to look at another one that we liked when we were younger a little bit later. Um, Eternal Sunshine. Just looking back, some of them, I'm like, yeah. From my vantage point as a almost 33 year old and also, you know, in 2023, these have things that I'm not as stoked about anymore or that I just no longer resonate with. Mm hmm. But they were pretty cool and pretty, some of them were pretty like hard to find or uncommon for people our age to be watching. And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Like I, I remember, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know how it really happened. Like it was just like, I want to be watching more movies and I didn't have a lot of friends that wanted to do that. Um, I eventually found like a little group that liked going to see movies and like watching movies, but finding the more niche stuff really started in high school with my film and media teacher. 
because he had like a huge collection of DVDs. And like once I started started expressing an interest and in wanting to see more of those, he would just like lend me his movies. Mm. And that's how I saw stuff like Run Lola Run. Oh, I did a lot of just like going to HMV and buying things based on like kind of what I'd found on the internet as like, if you like this, you might like this. I also did a lot of like, like I'd kind of find things in groups mm. or a lot of things came out of reading mm-hmm. um, because I was reading a lot. I also worked with some like cool older people um, when I worked at the, at the bookstore mm-hmm. and yeah, lots of like finding influences where I could, but what what was it about Kill Bill when you watched it the first time and then continued to watch it as a teen mm-hmm. that you liked so much? Like, what did you like about it then? I mean, like I said, it was unlike anything I had ever seen. So I, I think the the pacing of it, the action of it is is amazing. Some of the like the camera work, the 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 music is so cool. The fact that we like smash and smash away to uh, like an anime sequence in the middle of this live action movie. Um, and, and the story is so simple. Like it's mm-hmm. just a story of revenge and it's, and it's structured that way. And it, that's, uh, and Uma Thurman is the bride is so compelling that like, she just like brings you into it. And like, yeah, the whole, the kung fu aspect of it is really cool and i feel like a big part of the kill bill story like it's homaging these classic kung fu movies and i felt like it was meant to inspire people to watch more of those movies and dig into the history of that no and i feel like maybe that was an age thing like maybe if i had seen kill bill or if it had just come out now Mm. i feel like i would have more of the tools needed to Mm. seek out on Fu movies because like everything everywhere and Crouching Tiger have inspired me to want to dig That's more true. into yeah. that. Um, and now rewatching Kill Bill has inspired me even more to want to dig into that. And I feel like I can do it more easily now. That's fair. Yeah. Especially we were watching these when we were in junior high mm-hmm. with parents who are not going to. And we lived in a small town. Yeah. Like our parents are not going to drive us into Edmonton every day to search for Kung Fu movies. Yeah. And like our blockbusters and video headquarters, they're not going to have those kinds of movies. No. When I was finding some of these movies, it was either because I was like paying an arm and a leg to get them from HMV when I could convince like my mom or dad to drive me to West Ed. um, Or as I got older, like renting them from the movie studio. It's so funny because I can totally remember going to HMV and like wanting to. There were certain kind of more independent films or harder to find films that I wanted to get. And it was like 30 bucks for a DVD <laughs> when most are like 10 to 20. <laughs> You're like, I'm not. It was also like, it was specifically the agent at West Edmonton mall that was more likely to have them because it was bigger. Yes. Like if you went to the HMV on the South side of Edmonton, it didn't have as much of that kind of stuff. No. Um. So it was like, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd make a trip to, yeah. sometimes I was going and like going to West Ed when you grow up in south of, of Edmonton, it's kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a big deal for us now. We can drive there 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, it was like that was the reason for going. Yes. Like to go to HMV and like find all of these movies that you can find. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that I think those are the things I liked about it, too. Something that was like particularly meaningful for me watching Kill Bill when I was younger 
that I didn't hear you say is um, it was mostly all women. And I hadn't seen movies like that. Um, and while I don't particularly like Quentin Tarantino's persona or some of his tendencies in on and off screen at the time watching this movie where women are so many different things, women are mothers and fighters. They are revenge and skill. They are leaders and government and snipers. And like they are all of these things. I do not think I had ever seen anything that had so many women, so many different women and playing so many different types of people. Mm -hmm. Like as villains, as heroes, as like as stronger than the men, Mm -hmm. you know, like it just wasn't something I had seen before. And I've seen much more of it now and in more nuanced ways, but I can't, deny that that was really powerful for me at the age that I watched it, that like women can be badass. Yeah. Like the fact that the majority of the deadly Viper assassinations assassination squad is women. And even within that, they are the more badass ones. Yeah. Like Bud's pretty. (laughs) Yeah. You know, whatever. Um, Yeah. It was pretty, it was a pretty big deal. And you know, they're, the implication of sexual violence at a couple of parts, particularly in volume one. I remember when I was younger being like, that's so badass that she gets them. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just like, it just kind of makes me feel sick that it happened. Mm-hmm. But at the age that I was watching it, I was like, you can take revenge in so many ways. Like she's not just avenging what happened at her wedding rehearsal. She's avenging so many things throughout the entire movie. And I just felt like, that line of like you and I have unfinished business that she says a lot throughout these films, that idea that you don't have to like cower away. You can, you can stand up and you can have a voice and you can fight actually was very inspiring to a little 13 year old girl in suburban Alberta, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I have so much more of an understanding now of the ins and outs of Quentin Tarantino as a filmmaker in person that still doesn't change that. That's how that made me feel. Mm-hmm. when i was 13 years old yeah no i i, I agree I, I think that you know maybe i didn't articulate that when i was younger and i mean i didn't articulate it here but like that is such a powerful thing about that movie is that it's all these incredible women just kicking ass and having just ownership over who they are mm-hmm. and how they are um it's uh yeah, one thing I'll say is that I just wish that there was just more stuff with Lucy Liu in it. <laughs> She's pretty awesome. So this is this is really interesting. And I feel like, you know, when you said if this came out today, I feel like this is something we'd be very like on the pulse of. But, you know, as 13 year olds, we weren't really like reading all the articles about movies and like up on the discourse. So I guess there was an article published after the first one came out critiquing the character of Oren Ishii for being a dragon lady and an Asian stereotype. Um, and, uh, Lucy Liu wrote a op-ed in response to that. And I just want to read uh, a part of it. So she said in her, her, um, response, quote, Kill Bill features three other female professional killers in addition to Ishii. Why not call Uma Thurman, Vivica A. Fox, or Daryl Hannah a dragon lady? I can only conclude that it's because they are not Asian. 
I could have been wearing a tuxedo and a blonde wig, but I still would have been labeled a dragon lady because of my ethnicity. If I can't play certain roles because mainstream America still sees me as other, and I don't want to be cast only in typically Asian roles because they reinforce stereotypes, I start to feel the walls of the metaphorical box we AAPI women stand in. Oh, man. It's really well said. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Cause, like you even said, like one of your friends growing up who is Asian yeah. had that moment that we've talked about that like kids that have watched Black Panther, or, like what you said about watching Kill Bill, like there's like somebody I can see myself in. But there's a sadness in that, too, because I remember her and I having that conversation where, you know, we were adults and I said, you know, what was it? I'm, I'm curious what part I played in making you feel or if you felt other Mm -hmm. um and she said you know the only asian woman she ever saw on screen was lucy Liu. Mm -hmm. so i don't know that it was so much a like i identify with her but she's the only option yeah and that's i mean i do think a movie like this shows that like like she's not charlie's angels in this right right she's a i mean a leader of a pretty corrupt thing but she's a leader nonetheless Yeah, yeah yeah and she's she's pretty badass and she she has a voice and, and, and power. I don't know if, if my friend identified with that character. I don't. I just know that she, she said that Lucy Liu was the only person who even kind of looked like her right. who was on screens. Yeah. It's, it's true. Like, and it's, it's a sad truth. There just wasn't as, as much representation and nor was there much of a fight to have more representation at the time that was as vocal as it is now or at least not that we were aware of right because we were just watching these movies yeah just like whatever came out whatever was in the theater or accessible or whatever have to dig deeper that's the work we're doing now <laughs> um so i wanted to ask you which volume is your favorite of the two? So again, I feel like you and I had such different viewing experiences because you saw the first one and then it's probably like a year before you saw the second one. Mm-hmm. Whereas I saw them right together. But both then and now the second has always been my favorite. And the second is typically regarded as the one that's like, quote unquote, boring or not as not as fun or not as cool. But I can also see how... If you watched them so far apart and you've seen the first one many times, the second one is such a shift in pacing and, and even style to a degree that you might be like, what? This isn't what I signed up for. And you've built up what you want in your mind. Whereas I had none of that. I was just like, I want to know how the story ends. Right. Volume one ends on a cliffhanger. I want to know what happens. And volume two does answer those questions. So, you know, a couple of things that I've I've thought of since since then is because I just liked the second one more then, but now I'm like, oh, why? Is I've always been more of a story over action. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the first is action and the second is very story-based. Um, I've always been a digging into a moment over style and like big, big noises and colors and, and that. And the second film has a more consistent and neutral palette. Mm-hmm. Um now, it's also interesting because Quentin Tarantino has called volume one a kung fu homage or a kung fu movie mm-hmm. and volume two a Western movie. Mm. And something I've realized is um, I actually really like 
Western movies that aren't Western movies. Mm. You know, like Power of the Dog. Um, there's a bunch of movies we've seen in the last year or so that like Tampopo mm. that are, you know, they say they follow the story structure and some of the themes of a Western, mm -hmm. but they aren't actually like cowboy lone guy yeah, in the yeah. field. Um, and that's really interesting to me that like yeah. I was drawn to that one then. Which one's your favorite? Yeah, I um, I think a younger version of myself kind of fell into a little bit of the trappings of like volume two being, you know, quote unquote boring, but I still liked it more than volume one. There's more moments in volume two that give me the chills and yeah. still give me the chills. Something that's interesting to me is, um, and I, it's just something I didn't know or understand when I was younger, is like the role studios and, and other parts of the making, other people involved in the making of the film have say over things that a director might not want, mm -hmm. which sometimes I think is for the good. Mm -hmm. But I, I was reading a lot of people talking about how, you know, Quentin Tarantino considers this one movie. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously they came out almost a year apart in theaters. And some folks feel like the reveal at the end of volume one should never have happened. That like the audience should find out when the character finds out and that that would be more impactful mm. to not have like the second film be really like, and, and like people have said they felt like it was um the influence of production and like the financial people wanting a cliffhanger that draws people back to the theater, which like worked on me. Um, yeah. I mean, I've, I've never heard that before there, that, that comment made before. Um, and I can see how that would tighten the experience for sure. If this was like, if you were sitting down to watch the entire thing, the four hour yeah. trek of both together, the whole bloody affair, if you will. But yeah, like by the end of volume one, we're just like, holy shit, I can't wait until the next one. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I see both sides. Yeah, me too. Yeah, there's um, just like more of my favorite stuff, like the stuff I think about when I think about Kill Bill 1 and 2. My favorite stuff is in Volume 2. Mm. Um, it's the stuff I get excited about. I like the music a lot better in Volume 2. Better? I don't know. All of the like... Orenishi stuff's pretty damn good. It's true. And the five, six, seven, eight stuff. Fun story. The first person I ever dated hated that song. Hmm. And you know, as you do when you're dating in the 2000s, you make mixed CDs for each other. <laughs> and I put it as the first song on the CD. You stinker. Yeah. <laughs> That's really good. Yeah. Um, <coughs> I also had scenes watching it this time that hit different. It's kind of... In the kind of, you know, when I watched Jurassic Park as a kid, the whole them having lunch talking about the ethics of Jurassic Park was just boring. Get me back to the dinosaurs as a kid. Um, there were scenes this time around, like there's a scene in volume one in Okinawa that I always kind of wrote off a little bit, but actually I really enjoyed it this time around. And I thought it was really impactful. And I thought like I kind of got a little bit more emotional at certain beats with, 
Uma Thurman's character of the bride, like just some of the things like she does such a good job of both being a badass, but conveying hurt mm-hmm. and pain, emotional pain throughout. Like, that's a thing watching it in our thirties where it's like, we know what it's like to have a moral compass that we want to stand by. Yeah. And we know what it's like to have things we don't want to lose. Mm-hmm. To like have have decided what our life is going to look like, whereas when I was thirteen, it's it's all it's all like, what could my life be like? Whereas at this age, it's, these are the things I have chosen, and that I hold dear to me. Mm-hmm. And what would happen if that was taken from me? Like I don't think my brain could conceptualize that as a thirteen year old. I was just like this is cool, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so some of it does really land emotionally and thematically as an adult in ways that like I didn't necessarily think it would because I was like Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Uma Thurman is just incredible in these movies. Like the amount that she does, I know that she paid the price for doing some of the like stuff in this that was asked of her. Like I know she got injured. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's putting it lightly. She didn't want to do it. Yeah. And she was told she had to and yeah. she was injured. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's not cool. No, it's incredibly awful. And one of the many reasons I am not all that interested in Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I don't have much, <laughs> I don't have much more to say. Like revisiting it. Like I feel like they both still hold up. Um, there are some elements that, yeah, like like what you mentioned, um, just some some turns that uh, like don't don't resonate as much or don't feel as necessary. They need to necessarily be there. They're just kind of a little bit there for shock value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'll I'll continue I'll continue watching these movies, revisiting them because I feel like we haven't watched it since we were in our twenties. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe like every ten years or something, dive back in. Yeah, it's an interesting thing of like I just am not a fan of Quentin Tarantino as a person. And his last handful of films I've either been like uninterested in seeing or I really haven't liked. Yeah. Like really, really didn't like and had like strong feelings about. Mm-hmm. And even looking at his back catalog, it really was only Kill Bill. I like Inglorious Bastards too, but like Kill Bill was the only one that I like really liked. I never really was a Pulp Fiction person. I've only seen it once or twice. And I just haven't staked my cinematic life on him in a way that mm-hmm. makes it hard to say I like these movies. And I do. I still really I still really like them. Um, I also, as of the, the person putting this on IMDb trivia, so I don't know. I don't know about his more recent films that I haven't seen, but... Um, at least at one point in time, these two movies are the only Quentin Tarantino movies to not say the N word. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. They do have some racial slurs in them. They do, which I never um, picked up on when I wasn't watching it with subtitles. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah, th- this was the first time I'd ever watched this with subtitles. Fully. I was like, Ooh, okay. Um, but I did still really like them and I, and I would revisit them. They're not my favorite movies in the whole world. that I'm going to be like, Oh, you have to go out and watch these. Yeah. And, you know, I was teaching film study. I am in the middle of teaching film study with my grade 12s right now. And we were going over, like, 
close-ups and extreme close-ups and camera angles and this and that and like and what effect they have on the viewer as they watch them and I was talking about low angle shots and I said you guys you know like the the classic trunk shot in a Quentin Tarantino movie crickets yeah so the tide is turning and I, I think he's not the be-all end-all of like cinema mm-hmm. for younger people anymore um, before we close out, though, I do have a round of, is this trivia interesting? Vivica A. Fox dated 50 Cent in 2003, who dated Chelsea Handler in 2011, who dated Andre Belaz in 2011 to 2013, who dated Uma Thurman from 2003 to 2006, 2006 to 2008, and 2014 to 2016. I find it interesting that this person wanted to draw the line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, that was a lot of whoop-de-whoop-de-whoop to get to Vivica A. Fox and Uma Thurman. We're in Kill Bill together. Yeah. <laughs> Six degrees of, se- of separation between people they've dated. It's... Yeah. Wild. Wow. <laughs> How did Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 make you feel? Um, it made me feel an instant nostalgia. Like, as soon as it started, I was like, I know this movie like the back of my hand. Mm-hmm. but it was tempered by unnecessary reflectiveness. Mm-hmm. You? Yeah. It made me feel nostalgic, reflective, thrilled, chilled, and fulfilled. <laughs> thrilled, chilled, and fulfilled. Okay. Getting out of the teen years for a moment and into um, a director that we both like, but you're really into right now mm-hmm. um we did manage to get out to see uh, kelly reichert's newest film showing up it's a 2022 film comedy drama directed by kelly reichert and written by her and jonathan raymond stars the frequent collaborator michelle williams as lizzie hong chow as joe andre benjamin as eric judd hirsch as bill and john magaro as sean the synopsis is a sculptor preparing to open a new show tries to work amidst the daily dramas of family and friends What'd you think of showing up? Uh, I was really excited for this one. Um, like you said, just riding the Kelly Reichardt train real hard. Um, she's one of my favorite directors right now. Um, yeah, and I mean, like, what a what a stacked cast. And I'm also like finding that I've I really enjoy I've been really enjoying when John Magaro is on screen. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing one of the most anticipated movies of the year is Past Lives. He's in that. He was lovely in First Cow, another mm-hmm. Reichard film. Yeah, this this film, while well, as much as I was excited about it, I'm I'm feeling disappointed and frustrated because I was a sleepy sack when we went to see this and I wasn't able to give it the attention that it deserved, I feel, while watching it. So I was kind of I was I was struggling because this film was so quiet and kind of meandering in a Kelly Reichardt kind of way that that wasn't helping the sleepy sackness of myself. So I, I want to see it again, but I still enjoyed the film overall. It's good of you to acknowledge that you were asleep for parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we did intend to see this at a seven o'clock show the week before, which would have been better, but um, I was sick, so we didn't go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think, you know, of the Kelly Reichardt films we've seen and we've watched four this year, this is the fourth, 
this is a really different kind of world that she's playing in. It felt mm-hmm. a little bit more whimsical. It felt like a whimsy tempered by the bleakness of reality. Let me be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but it felt brighter. It was, and it was funny. And it was really funny. And I mean, she yeah. has moments of humor in all of her films, but this one, you know, it's, it's a comedy slash drama. Um, she likes to have animals in her films. I love that we got a kitty in this one. Mm-hmm. Ricky, what a great cat name. Um, and a bird. Mm-hmm. We're moving away from cows and dogs. <laughs> yes. And horses in certain women. Um, and into into birds and cats. That part of the story was really... I love what she does with like relationships with animals mm-hmm. in, in film. This also gave me um, summer camp vibes. How so? It just... It's it's a really sunny film, mm-hmm. and it feels. I think it's set in um, in April. Mm. There was something that made me think that I can't remember what it was, um, but it felt like the the place that she works. This like uh, it's it's my understanding is it's at a university, but it's kind of this like artist's corner of the university. It felt like a summer camp. Yeah, like you know people are. There was a lot of shots of people doing different activities. Like here they're doing pottery. Here they're doing like weaving. Here they're doing movement on the grass. (laughs) Um, And that, you know, I can connect with this having spent so many years of my life in university and being somebody who has my summers off now as as a high school teacher when you're in academia or in art or you have a kind of job that doesn't require you to work stringent hours, Mm -hmm. like you're not starting and ending at a certain time, there's this kind of aimlessness. Do Mm. I work on this? Do I not? Yeah. Did I do enough? Did I not? Right. Right? And, and that to me really like evokes a summertime feeling of like, I should really get up and do something. I don't have to. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, and I thought this film really, that's how it felt. That's how the film felt. That's, uh, that's how ADHD feels. All of the time. I, yeah. It just feels like eternal summer. It's like, I need, I have to do something or I should do this, but I'm struggling to get up to do it. <laughs> I don't have to do it, but I, I do have to do it. <laughs> um, Yeah. I think that's cool that you found that point of relationship to, to the movie. Cause yeah, like I, I saw that too, but also like as a creative person and as a creative person who is in a creative career, who experiences imposter syndrome and I seek validation for the art and the creative stuff that I make, I felt this one. I felt seen by this one, um, by the character of, Lizzie and what she's kind of going through in some regards because yeah like it's it's a very it's as a as a creative person you just go through so many struggles of like wanting to be seen and appreciated and have people tell you that you're good and that you can continue doing this thing that you love doing but we're just being a creative person means that you invite critique mm. and you invite evaluation from people that you might not want that <laughs> you might not want their eyes on this or you might not want their opinion but just some sometimes that's just the nature of putting stuff out into the world 
because you're inviting anybody and everybody to have an opinion on it. And that, that that's a good thing and a bad thing. It's something personally that I struggle is a strong word, but it's something that I wrestle with. Do you think, um, like looking at like this in comparison to her other films we've seen, which is First Cow, Certain Women, and Wendy and Lucy, like there tends to be like a key emotional focus, mm-hmm. and this one to me felt like it was frustration. <laughs> yes and and self-doubt mm-hmm. um which is hard to watch because she does kelly reichardt does such a good job in my opinion of like drawing you into feeling that emotion in tandem with the characters mm-hmm. and who wants to sit and feel frustrated for two hours <laughs> yeah right um because this definitely this isn't my favorite film of hers I've seen, even though I think all of her talents that I've liked and appreciated and all the other ones are there. It just didn't quite resonate with me personally or emotionally. And yet everything in it is pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, there's lots of people who who feel more of a connection to it for, for those reasons that you're talking about that, like artistic connection or this feeling of not being good enough in comparison to others all of the actors do such a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been feeling a little with Hong Chow ways we've talked about with Jesse Buckley. We're like, mm. you know, prior to seeing this, which is interesting because I think we saw the trailer for this before we saw the menu or the whale. Mm-hmm. And I thought it looked good, but I had no idea who Hong Chow was. And then we saw the menu and she was one of my favorite parts, but I didn't love the menu. And then we saw the whale, which I decidedly did not like, but I thought she was the best part of it. Right. It was really great to see her in something and be like, oh, I've seen her in these other two things and she was so great in them. And now she's in something that I can just like (laughs) and enjoy. (laughs) Yes. Um, And she's fantastic in this too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I so, yeah, I was so happy to see Hong Chao here and to like have such a good role and to play it so well. Um, as far as the character of Lizzie by Michelle Williams, yeah, just like that feeling of feeling so like complicated and yeah, frustrated, but also like be having that balance of being like a caring person or a person that, you know, they they want to be a good person, but maybe they don't want to be a good person in that moment. <laughs> yeah. But feeling just like that social obligation to do so. I feel like that's something that all of us as human beings can kind of relate to, having to do something. When we don't necessarily want to be doing it at that moment, that yeah, just Kelly, Kelly Reichardt has such a such a lock on these very like, human emotions on that varying scale: the big emotions, the small emotions, the day to day, moment to moment kind of interactions and emotions we feel. And that that's what I like. It's like she captures the quiet emotions. I also really liked, and it wasn't something I really thought about or understood until the movie was done, but like the dual meaning of the title. Yeah. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, damn. That's great. So the idea that like we can show someone up. Yeah. Like we can, in a moment where they are presenting something, we present something better. (laughs) You know, we just show them up. But then also what it means to show up for someone and how sometimes the line between that is really thin. Yeah. Like in when you were showing up in support for someone and when you are showing someone up. Yeah. Um, 
And I would like to revisit this film kind of knowing where it goes and knowing what it's about and thinking about the title in that thematic way. Um, yeah. I feel like that so pertains to the art world as well. Because I feel like there's just so much friendly and unfriendly competition that exists in creative fields of trying to, I'm trying to make the best thing. And in academia, because they aren't just artists, they're artists for a university. Yeah, that's true. Right? Um, and there's a particular kind of academic reality in that too. And then both of her parents are in that world as well. Yeah. Which I think just heightens that even further. Yeah, there's a lot going on in it, and I don't know that I got it all on the first go. I think I might like it even more on a second watch. I liked it. Yeah. But I didn't like it. It didn't hit as hard personally in the moment as her other films have for me. Yes. Yeah. I agree. And I I would like to revisit it for that reason and to not be a sleepy sack. Yeah, I love when you're not a sleepy sack. Yeah. It's it's so much better when you can watch the whole movie. <laughs> On that note, how did showing up make you feel? It may feel seen as a creative person who makes stuff or better or worse. I make you feel. On the opposite end, it made me really grateful to not have my hand solely in either academia or art. Because mm. my life could have gone in either of those directions and it has not. And I'm like, I think I'm maybe glad it hasn't. Yeah. It's it's so it's so complicated, like for from my perspective, because like I work in advertising, so it's not like I'm just making cool stuff and putting it out into the world as cool stuff. Like it's art filtered through business. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's a little different. Yeah. So it's not just me talking amongst creative people; it's talking to business-minded people. Um, so it's this it's this weird thing. It's emotional, but I do it. <laughs> Okay, I took us back to our teen years. So what actually happened was a while ago I took something out from the library that I thought was a TV show. <laughs> but then it was on Letterboxd as like a thing. And I was like, oh, maybe it's not a TV show with like a runtime of 80 minutes. I'm like, well, that can't be a TV show. Mm, yeah. And then I saw that the library had it. I've wanted to watch it forever. So I took it out from the library. And I was like, yeah, tonight feels like the night. I put it in, your eyes are closed because it's a mystery movie pick, and no, it's a TV show. <laughs> and like not like a miniseries. It's little 10-minute cartoons. That's so funny, too, because my eyes are closed, and you get to the menu, and you're just like, oh, there are episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I had picked Over the Garden Wall, and we did watch the first episode, and I think we liked it. Mm -hmm. um, well, I liked it. So when I said, I think we like it, I was looking for validation from you, and you said, mm -hmm, and we're yep. good. Yep. Um, but then I was like, yeah, we're not going to sit here and watch these episodes and call it a movie. It's just, it's not what I'm in the mood for. Mm -hmm. um, so then I had to, and my phone was upstairs, and I didn't want to go get it to like check my letterbox watch list. So I was like, I guess I'm just running through the streaming services and do the very thing we we avoid doing. And the first thing that caught my eye that I even kind of wanted to watch, I just picked. So this was not as purposeful of a mystery movie pick as I'm used to. But this was something that had been playing at Metro a week or two ago. And I'd been interested in seeing, but it was late on a weeknight. And, you know, we've had a couple bad experiences there 
and everywhere, but there particularly when they're playing like popular movies um, that have been out for a long time. And I was like, yeah, I'd, I would just rather revisit at home. So I decided tonight's the night. So we watched Donnie Darko. It's a 2001. Okay, I have 2011 written down. I'm like, that's not true. 2001 drama mystery sci-fi film directed and written by Richard Kelly Starring Jake Gyllenhaal as Donnie Darko, Jenna Malone as Gretchen, Mary McDonnell as Rose Darko, the mom, Holmes Osborne as Eddie Darko, the dad, Maggie Gyllenhaal as Elizabeth Darko, the sister, Devi Chase as Samantha Darko, the youngest sister, Patrick Swayze as Jim Cunningham, Drew Barrymore as Karen Pomeroy, the English teacher, and even more, but we'll stop there. The synopsis, after narrowly escaping a bizarre accident, a troubled teenager is plagued by visions of a man in a large rabbit suit who manipulates him to commit a series of crimes. Not crimes. No, not crimes. (laughs) So something we both had seen when we were younger, revisiting it now in the vein of Kill Bill and the vein of Eternal Sunshine and the, you know, we're kind of periodically coming back to things we used to like and, and like we talked about earlier, seeing what we think of them now. What'd you think of Donnie Darko? Yeah, like you were kind of alluding to earlier, this was another movie. I saw it for the first time in high school and I remember it blowing my mind um, and just melting my brain. And funnily enough, I haven't watched it since then. I think you I've think you've seen, only seen it once. I think I've only seen it once. And I remembered when, when I saw that you picked it, I remembered absolutely nothing about it other than Frank the Rabbit. Yeah. So I'm in the exact same boat. I have literally no memory of the first time watching it. And since it came out in 2001, it could have been as young as 11. I feel like I was older, but it might have been junior high. I was definitely, I was in high school. I know that for sure. Yeah, we didn't see it together though. (laughs) So I was like, I don't know when I watched it. And I feel like I watched it more than once. Um, One of the people I dated in high school when we were kind of courting. (laughs) Mm. Courting. Um, we would often skip class and go and like watch a movie together. And I know we watched Garden State and we watched Eternal Sunshine. And I feel like we watched Donnie Darko, mm. but that it was like me showing it. Like I don't uh, like there was a lot of that of like, oh, I want to show you one of my favorite movies. Right. Um, this was one of your favorite movies. But I'm I don't know if I did. <laughs> I feel like I did. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm so confused about it. I have no memory of the first time I watched it, how many times I watched it, but I know I watched it and I know I liked it. Right. But I must not have loved it or I'd remember it better, wouldn't I? I don't know. We've seen a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah. I, I just remember this was one of the movies that like in high school, I kind of did what you were talking about. Like when I heard about cool movies or movies that were interesting, I would go to HMV and just buy a bunch of them. Yeah. And this was one of those. And so I just watched it at home by myself. You bought it. Yeah. And only watched it once. Pretty sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I too remembered Frank. And mm-hmm. I knew Maggie and Jake Gyllenhaal were in it. And yes. that was about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. What what kinds of things did you like about it if you did? Um, I think the, the thing that I can say now that I definitely couldn't say back when I watched this is that I like that it has a bit of a Lynchian vibe. It does. Like it has very, some very weird kind of uncanny effects that make you uh, if you're watching it with one lens it's like oh this is just cheesy corny hammy but when david lynch does it you're just kind of discomforted by it yeah and it does have that feeling exactly yeah so i've kind of grown to like that yeah um 
And uh, the ending is really impactful. Yeah. And still is. Kind of nuts also that like this came out the year that 9-11 happened. So this is really interesting. I was reading some trivia about it because one of the key plot points in this film, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say this because it's so early on, is that a jet engine falls from the sky. Mm-hmm. And and there's some shots in the film of like a plane plummeting. Mm-hmm. And I guess those were very prominent in the trailer, which was cut. This film was filmed and and cut and edited Prior to 9-11. Yeah, I think it premiered at Sundance in January of 2001. But it didn't come out in theaters and stuff till after 9-11 and they pulled all the trailers because of that. Oh, shit. And so it actually was not as successful theatrically as it might have otherwise been because they were worried about the impact. Like, And, and it's a pretty dark movie, too. Yeah. Um. And I guess where it really found its following was on DVD, like when it came out. Mm. Um, I, like you, I was like, oh, I I see the connections between this and other things I really like. One of the things I think that this film is doing, which I like that it's doing, but I like it better in other things, Mm. is like looking at the twisted, dark underbelly of suburbia. Yeah. So when I think David Lynch, this actually reminds me the most of Blue Velvet. Yeah. Or Twin Peaks. Yeah. I yeah yeah very much. Where we we actually are quite grounded in a place that's very real, as opposed to like an Eraserhead or even a Mulholland Drive, right? Mm-hmm. That's more glamorous or more like full on surreal. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's suburban. Mm-hmm. But then but then we're looking at like the twisted things that are actually happening in it. And then matching that with some surreal things to heighten that thematic. It also reminded me a lot of American Beauty, mm. which was my absolute favorite movie as a teenager and into my 20s. Fuck you, Kevin Spacey. Reminded me a lot of Six Feet Under. Yeah. Which is one of our favorite TV shows. And then it also reminded me a little bit of that German show Dark. Yeah. Which yeah. I really liked. Mm-hmm. So... I was doing a lot of like Twin Peaksing effect of it, where I'm like, 2001 is actually a long time ago. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. this was doing some cool stuff, um, both after and before some of the things I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I and I totally get why some people just love this because it's got that like, what's going on in your hometown is more fucked up than you think, and mm-hmm. we're all struggling more than we admit. Mm-hmm. Um. And the ending is really, really good. And that the Frank imagery still haunting. Oh yeah. It's it's so creepy. And the voice is creepy. Yeah. Like it's just and just the sense of and I, I was compelled then and I'm still compelled now by like feeling insane in suburbia because you see something that other people think isn't there. And and I think these films and shows that look at that, some more realistically, some more through like that symbolism of the surreal. They're talking about like that idea of the, the you see that everything's not as perfect as people want it to appear as. Mm-hmm. Right. And Patrick Swayze's character is a big part of that in this film, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love just like how Donnie himself is just so dark and mysterious and edgy just like so watching this in high school it's just like yeah man like 
fuck everyone. <laughs> so I, I literally wrote that, that like I liked and identified with characters like that when I was like a junior high, high school student, this like dark loner who nobody understands and he likes literature and, yeah. you know, and I'm like, get out of my room, close yeah. the door. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these cool posters on my walls. Yeah. I like Joy Division. <laughs> but like, why, why did we, why were we so connected to characters like that? Because we were in high school too. Yeah. Because I think that was the thing now where I'm like, yeah, the character of Donnie is not that compelling to me. No. But yeah. And it's like dumb relationships. Like, do you want to go with me? We haven't even kissed yet. (laughs) You know, like, (laughs) you know, those kinds of things. I was like, eh. That stuff just like matters so much more because we're just, just haven't experienced much of the world. (laughs) And this movie is so singularly focused on Donnie. Whereas when I think of, I rewatched American Beauty last year and I still really loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I look at American Beauty or Six Feet Under as comparative points, they have, you know, in Six Feet Under, you have Claire, should you be wanting to feel the angsty teen? Mm-hmm. But you've got Nate if you're feeling like the older sibling that feels the weight of family expectations. You've got Ruth if, you know, so you've got all of these different people to connect with. And same in American Beauty, there's the dad, there's the mom, there's the daughter. And different people that you could connect with at different times of watching the film. Whereas this is pretty much just Donnie. Yeah. I mean, Donnie Darko, great name. Uh, Yeah, they say that in the film. The whole time, every time the dad was on screen, I couldn't help but think he's the dad. He's Guy Patterson's dad from That Thing You Do. Oh. So I just kept thinking about that. (laughs) (laughs) There's also a point in this movie where all of the kids are on bikes. And it just kind of makes me swoon in media when a group of kids, some who've met, some who haven't, or you haven't even seen them like talk on screen, they just immediately like band together and then passionately ride bikes together. (laughs) (laughs) I just like, there's just scratches that like nostalgia loving of just like this ragtag group of people coming together and for a common purpose. Well, the early in the film, the, the mom is reading it. So yeah. you can see that there's some like influence there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. This was like, it was so weird to revisit it. And like, unlike Kill Bill, when we popped it on and I was like, oh, I like, I could quote this entire movie to you right now. I was like, I literally don't know what happens in this. Yeah. Two, two Jill and Halls for the price of one. That's all I got. That's all I know. I know there's a rabbit and that's about it. Like, I couldn't have even told you that it's like about these crimes or whatever. Um, after it ended, I was like, oh, I actually do remember the ending. Hmm. But I didn't remember it until I watched it. And it wasn't until the ending that I remembered it. (laughs) Um, So it was kind of a weird experience. I did remember that I was obsessed with playing Mad World on the piano after I saw this movie. Mm. Obsessed. Mm. I cannot tell you how many times I have sat in my room in the dark playing Mad World. The version from this, like the Gary Jules piano version, singing along to it. Feeling all good tune. It is a good tune. I still have the sheet music upstairs if you want a little concert later. Oh damn. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, been 15-ish years since I watched this, and I feel like I can see myself waiting that long again to revisit. Yeah, I was it. just gonna ask, do you think you want to watch it a bunch? Yeah, I think I think every 15 years-ish <laughs> is probably fine. When it was playing at Metro, I guess it was a 4K restoration. And I'm kind of bummed we didn't see that because we watched it on Crave and it looked 
like a DVD. Like it was really low res. <laughs> like it was Crave in, truly does the bare minimum. Yeah, Crave sucks and it costs so much money, but it's like if you want HBO, you gotta have it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it was a interesting little experiment. I, I, I enjoyed it, I will say. Yeah. But I'm I think like then, it's not my most favorite thing in the world. And it kind of just made me want to watch things it reminded me of that I like more. Mm-hmm. Bit of a bummer for it, I guess. But, you know. But I'm, I, I mean, I'm also grateful when stuff is able to remind me of other things that I maybe haven't revisited in a yeah. while. Or Like, we got to get our six feet under on soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how did Donnie Darko make you feel? Yeah, just happy to revisit it. Um, yeah. Simple. <laughs> Easy peasy. Got it. How did it make you feel? It it got me thinking about the roots of like the bizarre parts of my cinematic love. You know, like the things I liked that were a little bit ickier. Yeah. Is there some icky stuff in this? And you like crimes. Love crimes. <laughs> Do crimes. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. I actually no. don't like things about, I don't like crime movies all that much, <laughs> unless it's murder. Murder, dirder. Okay, take us home. Take us to our last film. Okay, head back out to Metro Cinema and watch the 2022 drama Joyland. It was uh, written and directed by Saeem Sadiq, uh, as well as Maggie Briggs as a writer. Um, it stars Ali Junjo. I'm going to butcher these names. I'm so sorry. Ali Junjo as Hader. Uh, Rusty Farouk as Mumtaz, uh, Alina Khan as Biba, Sonia Saeed as Fayaz, uh, Sarwat Jelani as Nuki, Nuchi, and Salman Perzada as father. There's a few other folks in there too. Um, synopsis is the youngest son in a traditional Pakistani family takes a job as a backup dancer in a Bollywood style burlesque and quickly becomes infatuated with the strong-willed trans woman who runs the show. Uh, this was uh, one that I was I was looking forward to. It was so funny because I, I heard some really good things about it, and that was essentially it. And it just I saw it was playing at Metro. I'm like, we should go see this. And then leading up to it, I'm just like, you know anything about this? Does it have good reviews? <laughs> and I was like, you were the one who insisted we go see this. Yeah. I just like, yeah, I want to go see this. We should definitely go see this. What are we going to see? How long is it? What's it about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm just a silly pancake this week. What do you think of Joyland? I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. I am um, back to my favorite kind of thing, which is like quiet, subtle, complex. Not everybody does likable things all of the time. Um difficult to to wrap your mind around how you feel about the things that happen and the choices people make yeah i love that yeah i find myself a day out from watching it now still reflecting on it the the final scene if i thought was very powerful and i can't really shake it was Um, that after i talked to you about it uh or before too i mean before like it really hit me in the guts and the heart. Um, and then after we talked about it even more so. Um, yeah, like the word I keep going back to about this movie is that it was powerful. Mm-hmm. And really gorgeous, like cinematography wise. Yeah. 
and the final shot it leaves you with is just a great yeah. sort of button on that. This was a film that um, I think would be a really fantastic film study mm. in like, like I, like I actually think I could teach this, mm. but I don't think I could teach this. Mm. Um, there's just a little bit too much uh, sexual content, I think, for my school to to be willing to do that. But I actually thought this would make a really strong pairing with a play that I teach in grade 12 called A Doll's House. Mm. And A Doll's House is sit, set, and it was written um, in Victorian Norway, 1800s. And it's about this woman who comes to realize that like her whole life has been a performance and she doesn't want it to be a performance anymore. Like she wants to like a lot of it is her, like her coming to the realization that like, no, she doesn't know who she is and she doesn't know what she likes and she doesn't know what she wants. But if she stays in this like restrictive societal structure, she'll never figure it out. Um, And I thought this would be such a beautiful pairing with that in a much more contemporary context. A non-white context would be nice too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it is so purposeful cinematography wise, symbolism wise, like it's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, and it's got a lot going on in it. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a strong exploration of familial and societal pressures and how to, how to carve your own path through life. And that sometimes you kind of have to, it might feel like you need to hack your, your yeah. path through life. Um, and it's, it's that search for and the struggle to find independence or to find your voice and what your purpose is. And the reality that sometimes that doesn't happen. Yeah. Or it can't happen. I mean, I, I read a review of this that talked about how it, um, it both speaks very clearly to a Pakistani context and yet also transcends that at the same time in a way that is relatable universally. And I think that is such a difficult thing to accomplish to make something specific to a time and a place and a people and yet also be relatable to people outside of that context. Oh yeah, totally. Because there was a lot relatable about the pressures of family Mm -hmm. in this. And society. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Even if the context is different. I also, um, this made me think of the way Sean Baker makes his films, mm. which is like, you know, when I think about particularly the Florida project, but these characters in the films who do things that I sometimes really don't agree with and really don't like. Mm-hmm. And yet Sean Baker films with such non-judgmental empathy. Um, and I fa- felt that in this too. Like even when a character did something I was really unhappy about, I, the film was not made in such a way to then, orchestrate how I felt about it. It left it up to me to decide how I felt about it. Yeah. And it just presented things as they were and as they happened um, without building to this like predetermined way we're meant to feel. Yeah. I mean, like the filmmaking scene is like non-partial. Yeah. 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 Like it does. And in that it's, it explores like, uh, like the power and the danger of desire mm-hmm. and, and longing. Um, and also just like as a person, anybody like seeking validation, seeking respect, adoration and love that can just lead you down paths. You never thought your life would go mm-hmm. or whatever want your life to go. So it can be exciting, but it can also be scary, mm-hmm. frustrating, 
just stirs so many things in me and like it's it the film itself is so thoughtful that it's made me thoughtful this is also one of those ones like some of the films i films and tv shows i mentioned earlier where despite the fact that hater is the protagonist it really does show nuance and complexity with so many of the characters Mm -hmm. that it's one that i could see myself on rewatch being drawn to a different character or really compelled by this storyline this first watch, I was actually most compelled by the sister-in-laws and their relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mumtaz and Nuki, Nuki, mm-hmm. um, their the way that their relationship shifts and changes and develops develops throughout the film, um, I found really, really, really impactful and compelling. Yeah, I was really swept up in Mumtaz. Um, yeah, as a character. Yeah. Also, you thought everyone in this movie was such a babe. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about the funniest thing about seeing this movie. Um, so as soon as Hater came on screen we were, and the, the shot was focused on him for a while, I leaned over to you, stroked my chin and said, oh, handsome. <laughs> uh, and then Mumtaz came on screen shortly after and I leaned over, stroked my chin again and said, handsome. And then at the end of this movie, there's a conversation where where Hater in the film is referred to as handsome. And then he refers to Mumtaz as handsome. handsome. So I can't believe that that paid off. <laughs> but everyone in it is really beautiful. Um, yeah. And, and complex and human. And I feel like this is one that would benefit from rewatches as you know where it ends up. You can see the subtleties in these characters. This is one of those films. Um, I don't know if you know this, but when it came out, it was banned in Pakistan. Okay. And yeah. then there was a reevaluation of that and the ban has been lifted, but it is still banned in uh, Punjab province in Pakistan and you can watch it elsewhere. Um, and, and a lot of, I think really um, important, complex, reflective conversations happened around the original banning and then the lifting of the ban amongst folks in Pakistan and also um, in, in nearby countries. Uh, I know that there was a lot of conversation about it um, in some parts of India. People like kind of talked about connections between context in India and Pakistan. And, you know, like, of course, films get banned other places than just the country they were made in. Um, and I think it's this film has created some really good points of conversation despite the difficulties in the choices that some countries provinces are making mm-hmm. totally but i this is um sam sadiq's first feature film oh wow and didn't know that i am in for what is created in future yeah big time really really liked it yeah I, yeah highly recommend this movie it'll make you reflective as shit how did it make you feel? It made me feel a melancholic reflection on both the sadnesses and joys of life. Mm, yeah, that's well said. Made me feel swept up in how emotionally impactful the story was. All right, it's time for Bad Dads and Rad Dads. Yeah, Dads of the Week, baby. Who's your bad dad? I mean, do we not have the same one? Probably. Three, two, one. Bill. Bill. I mean... He, he's referred to in the movie yeah, as a, a bad, bad daddy. daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what's your, what's your reasons? Oh, 
Okay, so the first thing I have written down is this guy is just one nasty ass. <laughs> he is a nasty ass. Like, the more you hear from him, particularly in volume two, the more you're like, he is so manipulative. Oh, yeah. And like, he believes he, he's solipsistic. Like, he's the only person that exists to him. Yeah. And everybody else that exists, exists in service to him. Is he Quentin Tarantino? Freaking probably, man. Um, he's just unnecessarily vengeful as a counterpoint to the bride's very necessary vengefulness. Yeah. Um, he's egotistical. AF. Yeah, too much. He gaslights. Yes. And like he can't see, I think one of the things that bothers me the most is he can't see that anyone might be better than him. Yeah. Like there's a there's a moment in volume two where he's shocked that somebody offered something to the bride that was never offered to him. Mm-hmm. And her response is, of course, mm-hmm. like you think that nobody can get more than you can get. And honestly, just like good riddance, Bill, like, fuck you, kill Bill. Yeah, it's the name. It's the name of the movie. And with good reason. Mm-hmm. You have any additional reasons? Yeah, no, it's exactly that. Everything you said, like his his feelings, he's a dangerous person, so his feelings can turn volatile at the drop of a hat, and he feels like he knows everything, and he's just an asshole. I hated watching him make a sandwich. Yes, and he just like he loves adoration and being the center of attention yeah. and being the the one that knows everything and that nobody can pull a fast one on. Uh, he likes being in control. And it's just like, fuck off. You Don't be my dad. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. So, Bill, you nasty ass. Don't, don't be, be our dad. dad. Just don't. Who's your rat dad? You go first. Uh, I, I mean, I picked the bride. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about it. So, the bride from Kill Bill, Uma Thurman. She sets boundaries for herself. Like, when she reaches a certain point in her life where she has to make a decision... She makes a decision that's right for her um, and right for her future. And she doesn't need anybody else to have sway or an opinion over that. She does what's right for her. Um, I mean, she seeks justice for the wrongs that are done to her, rightfully so. She's passionate Mm -hmm. and driven. And she cares about those that she loves. That's right. How about you? I picked the character of Nuki from Joyland, the sister-in-law. Yeah, yeah, okay. So she was a character that grew on me throughout the film. Mm-hmm. Um, she's in a really difficult position throughout the film of being the carer of everyone in the house and of the house itself. Which is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, there's nine people, four children. Um, and yet she seems to see everyone's individual needs and how different they are there's moments where she could be really manipulative or really um toxic and she doesn't like she holds secrets and and observations that are probably a burden to hold um at first when i was watching this it seemed like she let that task of being the character like subsume her and she had like no individuality and then the longer the film went on i realized that like She's quietly observing and taking stock of 
dynamics and what people need. And when it is right and appropriate, she intervenes both in subtle ways and in more visible and vocal ways mm. in ways that I think are very admirable considering the position that she's in. Um, and I thought, you know, within this very complex structure, familially, um, societally, that she's doing the very best she fucking can yeah. to let people be themselves and to care for them and to stand up for them when they can't or won't. Yeah. That scene with her in the third act. Yeah. Is... That, that's when I cried. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, holy, yeah, holy moly. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that choice because I, I think the bride is not a, it, like, neither one of them are perfect people. No. Um, whatsoever. Like they're very much stuck in just like the lives that they're living. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I like Nuki. N- N- I, yeah. I hope that's how it's pronounced, but yeah. Be, 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 be your be dad. dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Rad wreck of the week this week is a bit of a heavy one. But uh, a really important one. Uh, so we talked. I think we've talked on the show before about the filmmaker Kevin Smith. Um, I've been a fan of his work and just him as a person for quite some time. Um, and then I kind of brought you into the fold when we started dating, and I feel like our relationship to him and his work has evolved as has he as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, he is very much not the same kind of person and has the same outlook on life that he did when I first became a fan and he's grown so much. And he just seems like such a lovely person and such a rad dad. But uh, I got served this video on YouTube the other day. It was essentially just a oh, just over 30 minute him talking to camera video. It's called um, Trauma is Trauma and it's Kevin Smith speaking about trauma, specifically trauma he's uh, experienced in his life and how he is currently dealing with the trauma. Um, And he reveals a lot of uh, really illuminating things about how we talk about trauma and also shares a lot of personal things that happened to him. So there's a bit of a trigger warning up front of there's discussions of sexual abuse as well as just like some really upsetting language that's used towards him. Yeah. And in terms of like fat bodies. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's really heavy, but it's really thoughtful and insightful and hearing his take on, on the importance of looking after your mental health is something that I think is really important for men to say to other men. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I think that, you know, there's definitely more talk about mental health in the discourse as a whole, but I don't necessarily think that there's a lot of talk of mental health between men mm-hmm. um, that that I see happening uh, in society. So I think it's an important piece, and it, he's really well-spoken. Like That's why I'm a big fan of his. And he goes up about expressing these things really eloquently and accessibly. So that's the Red Wreck. Is, uh, we're going to put a link to the video in the show notes. Recommend checking it out because I think it's a really important piece that's been put out into the world. 
It's, it's a hard watch, I'll say. Yeah, I definitely, um, I got really emotional at a few points in it. But a really important one. And I think Kevin Smith has been really vocal about the importance of his physical health after he experienced a heart attack that almost killed him mm-hmm. a handful of years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think seeing him talk about how mental health is just as life-saving mm-hmm. and just as important to look after as your physical health uh, is really important. And mm-hmm. particularly considering who Kevin Smith's fans have traditionally been. Um, I was kind of, I was looking at what people were saying about this talk on Reddit. And, and one of the first things I saw was a person saying, wow, I really connected with this. I've never thought about going to therapy, but maybe it's time. And then just like a bunch of people in the comments being like, yeah, man, it's time. It's so helpful. And like the fact that this might create pockets of conversation with people that otherwise wouldn't have these conversations. Like there's some things that he talks about in this that, you know, as people who've been going to therapy for a long time, who have done EDMR, mm-hmm. um, these are words we know and things we've heard. And EMDR. I always make that mistake because like, <laughs> it's not electronic dance music. <laughs> <laughs> did I say EDMR? You did. I do it all the time. <laughs> EMDR. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit of like trauma 101 in this. Yeah. Uh, but there are so many people who need trauma 101. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Kevin Smith does a really generous and beautiful and powerful job of speaking about his own experience in a way that's not overly graphic or overly... Um, painful even though it is hard to hear and and then like making it about like what we can do and the conversations we can have and the ways we can take care of ourselves and i really love him yeah i really just want to i really just want to give him a hug i agree Uh, uh, yeah this this hit me really hard because some of the things he talks about are just things i knew about him as a kevin smith fan so i can see the things that he was doing in the past that have led him to the things he's talking about in this in this piece and it it was really hard to hear some of those things but it inspired like a really great conversation between the two of us after the fact um just about ourselves and stuff we've experienced stuff that we think about but yeah wanted to put this little thing on uh, on your all's raid radar because uh, it's it's really it's good and it's important we think so that's the Red Wreck. Link in the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. You can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek at what we've been watching on our individual letterboxed accounts. Usernames are in the show notes. And we would absolutely love you forever if you share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these Black Mambas this week. Until next time. I'm Kylie and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.